Steve Balton, and welcome back to People Have the Power, where this week we are joined all the way from Australia, via Zoom, of course, by Julia Stone. This was a really fun conversation. I have known her for years through her work with Angus Stone, and this was a really enjoyable conversation, talking about her new album produced by St. Vincent, about protest songs from Midnight Oil and Leonard Cohen, and much more. We really went deep. Hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did, because, man, it was a blast. So you might be in the dark ages a bit with the internet, but then at the same time, you know, you guys are in way better shape than America as, you know, in administration and coronavirus. So, you know, there's the, the, the back and forth <laughs> that you get. There are some positives. <laughs> How is it there these days? You know, I mean, I guess it's probably much like... Um, everywhere it's it's a strange new world that we're living in and um today it's become mandatory um for the first time that everybody wears masks so that hasn't been happening people just you know roaming about but I'm in Melbourne and in Melbourne um there's been an increase in cases over the last um over the last month and so they've put us back into lockdown stage three and and everybody wearing masks and yeah it's you know it's it's odd but it's um we're, we're lucky you know it's it's much easier to contain it here than europe and the u.s well yeah and also in the u.s you got a bunch of idiots who don't want to wear masks or think it's a hoax or it became a political statement or you know, oh yeah, we have conspiracy theorists down here as well. There's plenty, plenty. I mean, I think they exist the world over. I believe some people think 5G is uh, how the coronavirus is traveling through the towers that haven't been built. Yes, very interesting times. That it's interesting. So now, is the record done, by the way? The record that you did with St. Vincent? Or is it right now, like, have you finished it? Or are you still working on it? Have you been working on it in quarantine? Like, you know, I've heard three tracks now. Yeah, we've we've sort of still been doing a little bit of back and forth um, online, but it's very close. You know, we just um, we just yeah, we just sort of been basically. I mean, I've always been in touch with Thomas a lot over um, like online because he's based in New York and I'm based, you know, mostly everywhere else. Um, so yeah, there's been a little bit of back and forth, but we're pretty close. Like, I'm hoping that will be done soon. Um, what three tracks have you on? Oh, hold on a second. Let me look. I suck at titles. It's so funny. I was just talking about this with the chicks yesterday, formerly the Dixie Chicks. Because I just listened to it. If you send me stuff, I listen to it all in a row and all at once. So I'm terrible with titles. Like, I just refer to it as track one or track seven or track ten or whatever. It's okay. You don't, because, have, to go, like, you don't really, have to find them. It's, it's fine. It's okay. One of my favorite it. comments ever was yesterday when I was interviewing the chicks when Natalie Maine said... And I quote, she's like, yeah, she's like, I listen to albums all the way through. She's like, I don't think I've ever listened to a playlist. I thought that. <laughs> yeah. Chalk, knock it off. Come here, good boy. <laughs> I had to put my, um, my dog in the other room because she's, she gets so out of control when I talk on the phone. It's like the attention isn't on her. So she starts getting <laughs> absolutely manic. 
What kind of dog do you have? I have an Australian cattle dog. It's Little Red Healer. Come here, dude. No, he's awesome. I have a pit lab mix. He's great. But he has a huge bark, as you can hear. And for some reason, in every interview, no matter what, he just, yes, you good boy. Every interview, it does not fail. And it's not the attention. I think it's just, you know, like, okay, cool. I'm bored. Or there's yeah, yeah, yeah. something or whatever it is. So, all right, hold on. We're just opening this up and then we are going to get started. And, you know, I'm very excited as well to hear what, uh, you know, protest songs you chose. And so, by the way, I've heard Danced, two edits of it, and I've heard Unreal, and I've heard Brick. Awesome. Yes. Cool. So I feel like I've probably heard more than most. Is there yes. a timeline for releasing the album? Um, there's sort of, it's been changing a lot. You know, it's sort of, um, we were hoping it would be this year at some point, but I, I don't know. I mean, I, I just, I guess I, um, I just will deliver it and then the people who do the planning will figure that out. So I'm not exactly sure myself just yet. I will be well, at think, some point. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's so funny because the music industry is not sure. You know, it changes on a daily basis and no one has a freaking clue what's going on right now. I have so many yeah. manager friends I talked with who say the same thing. So it's an interesting time to be now. You signed with, uh, it was BMG Worldwide, correct? Yes. Yes, I did. Except for in Canada. I signed with um, Arts and Craft in Canada. Okay. But now I was just curious. It's such an interesting time to move on to a new label. But, you know, I don't want to do a boring business story. So, you know, but I am curious how you, how you got with uh, St. Vincent. Um, well, I guess... Um how did it start? So I met Annie sort of um, through our mutual drummer and friend, Matt Johnson. So Matt Johnson was the guy who I grew up listening to on Jeff Buckley's Grace record. And when we toured, Angus and I toured with Martha Wainwright through Europe in, I don't know what year it was. It was a long time ago, but Maddie was drumming with Martha and we had this like great friendship that formed over that tour. And then we went out on another tour and Maddie was available and we asked him if he would come on tour with us. We never expected him to say yes, but he did. And he ended up touring with us for three or four years and, um, and playing on a bunch of stuff. I think he played on, yeah, he played on down the way. He played on snow. Um, oh, he also played on the record we did with Rick, uh, which was, um, yeah, he, he flew out to LA to come to Shangri-La to do that. And anyway, Maddie's a great guy. He's a really brilliant drummer. And he, um, he then, after Angus and I took a break, he started drumming with Annie in St. Vincent. And so Maddie was, we then went back on tour and I think at that time we were drumming with Chris Dave, who we'd met through Rick, doing the Rick record. And Chris and Maddie both, uh, grew up in Texas. I think they may have even gone to the same school. Like it was something really like random like that. And we're walking through the airport in Helsinki, I think it was. It was a summer festival season. And I saw Maddie walking along with his bags and I sort of yelled out and we kind of like, oh my gosh, you know, it's one of those exciting moments on tour where you cross paths with somebody that you love. And Annie was with him. And he introduced us and he said, you guys should be friends. Um, and she said, okay, let's be friends. And so we swapped. <laughs> and she sent me a text message saying, um, friends. And 
after that, we sort of just stayed in touch loosely over text. And um, I always found Annie to be very warm and lovely, but I also was seeing her perform at some of these festivals and I just thought she was spectacular to watch. And, um, and it wasn't until maybe a couple of years after that she came, I was spending a lot of time in New York with Thomas and she came to do a um, piano vocal version of her record. And I was in the studio at the time that they were recording that. And um, so I got to spend a bit more time with her then. But again, it was all just kind of pretty random. It was like dinners here and there. And um, and then anyway, Thomas and I had been working on all of these songs. We had about 30 songs we had written and we didn't know what this record was going to be. And we were starting to get a bit lost in our own world of writing. And Thomas said to me, you know what we should do? We should get Annie to produce this. We should get Annie to come in, listen to all the songs and tell us, you know, which ones are good and which ones we should let go of and what, what this record's going to be and, um, and how we should kind of maybe shape the songs in, a, in whatever way. And I, of course, thought that was an amazing idea and um, just hoped that she would be up for it. She had just finished producing the Slater Kenny record and... Um, or was maybe in the kind of mixing process of that. So I knew that she wanted to get into production or at least she had done that, that particular project. And anyway, Thomas asked her and she was really keen and she came and listened to the songs and she just, it was amazing from the moment she sort of turned up on the first day with her note. I never forget. She had like a notepad and a pen and she said, you know, play me all the songs. And she was writing notes and sort of saying things through the songs that were so helpful and amazing already. And I had this feeling of relief, like we're going to finish this, you know, like <laughs> it's going to get done. It's so interesting. I mean, how much did the record change after she became involved? Did the sound change or was it something that she kind of more fine-tuned it? Some songs changed a lot and some songs hardly changed. I mean, she added on, on some songs that were similar to how they were already existing. Um, she, um, she, would, she added, you know, like some amazing guitar playing and um, sometimes some backing vocals or things like that and pulled out a couple of, you know, a couple of too many synths, you know, like that's way too many sounds. That was also something she was great at, which reminded me a little bit of working with Rick, some of the similarities of the production style, which was, you know, stripping things out, you know, like removing things to make it feel um, more spacious. And it's a pretty like thick sounding record. So you can imagine what it sounded like before with <laughs> extra, extra synths. Um, but yeah. And then some songs like um, dance, for instance, is a really great example of uh, a song that was so different. It was kind of like this really, we really wanted to make it like a pop song. It felt like that chorus, you know, why don't we dance? There's only one thing left to do. You've got that hold on me. I've got that hold on you. It felt like that chorus was really poppy and we wanted to really go there with that. And Annie had a different idea when she heard the song. She was sort of, um, she heard it as like referencing more like Bonnie and Clyde, Serge Gainsbourg kind of style song, like something a bit more romantic and um and it was great that she took it in that direction because then the um, the verses sort of changed from being these lyrical thing, I'm um, sorry, melodic things into being more like spoken word poetry, which I hadn't ever done before. And it ended up uh, 
being a kind of style of singing that I really enjoyed. Singing, speaking. Speaking, interesting. I mean, it's funny when you say, because it's like, you know, one of my favorite artists of all time is Patti Smith, who, you know, started as a poet and then mixes those. So when you say sort of speaking, singing, I think of Patti Smith, though it's a very different form because I have heard dance. But it's funny, were there people that you sort of looked at or looked to or that were, you know, uh, inspirations in, in changing your, your style up or that you just admire for the way that they evolve consistently? You know, until you've asked me that question right now, I haven't really, I haven't really thought about the people that inspired me, particularly for this record. Certainly I've been so inspired by different artists throughout my life, but, um, you know, f- doing this sort of spoken word thing, for me, um, it was about, I, a lot of this record was about not judging myself. You know, I think I've been so, um, I've been so kind of in a style for so long with my brother and with my previous solo stuff. It was really, it was this feeling of like, I wanted to do something different and I wanted it to sound different and I wanted to use my voice in different ways, but I'd never done that before. And for having been in the industry making records for almost 15 years, it was a really like challenging thing to, to just trust myself that going down those roads were, were going to be okay. And you know, another amazing thing that happens is that, you know, like you, you probably, I don't know how you feel about hearing your own voice back on your podcast, whether you sometimes hate cringe it. it. Exactly. So that's like the thing that everybody hates, you know, like you hear yourself on someone's, um, like on a voice, uh, a voice machine or something and not that they exist anymore. I'm trying to think of an example when you hear your voice back, but it's one of the most shocking things to hear how you speak. You think, I don't sound like that. You know, in your head, it's got a bit more of a deeper timbre and you sound a bit more <laughs> kind of um, thoughtful and romantic. And then you hear yourself and I sound, uh, you know, like me. And to speak, uh, I just was like, that's not going to sound good. That is definitely not going to sound good. I don't mind hearing myself sing, but hearing myself speak was just, you know, it was um, a challenging thing to kind of get through. And I had to find this way of speaking that was authentic to how I sound as a, as a person, but also sounded palatable <laughs> enough that I was going to live with it as a song. So there were just like these adventures within adventures, you know, it was like with Annie and Thomas, they, they really both pushed me just to kind of get past that judgment and criticism and keep going and keep trying things. Well, so that's so funny for you. Did it take a while though to get to the point where you don't mind hearing yourself sing or was it something that early on you got used to it? Cause you know, of course, most artists do 99.9% of artists can't stand listening to their own music. In fact, it's kind of a joke, but I, I've, you know, as someone who talks to a lot of artists, this has come up, but it's, uh, you know, how do you tell the psychopathic narcissistic artist? It's the one who listens to their own music. <laughs> well, they're not saying I listen to my own music. I, I definitely don't, by the way. That's um, um Well, let me rephrase that. You know, there's always <laughs> you know, like you go back and you hear it because you have to, you know. Like it's funny, yeah. tomorrow for the show I'm doing Alison Mosshart from The Kills and Dead Weather. And she has one of my yeah. favorite stories of all time. Because she was telling me once she was in a bar and she heard the song and she's like, Oh, this is kind of a cool song. And it was on for a full minute and a half before she realized that it was her singing. That is amazing. That is really cool. I mean, 
but I feel like it's not surprising because most artists, you know, like you, you put a song out and then you let it go. Yeah. The only times I've ever heard our music play is when it happens to be playing in, in a, a cafe or a restaurant or, you know, luckily most people know not to put it on when you go around to their house for dinner or, or things like that. But I have heard it at times and it doesn't bother me like it used to. I used to feel really embarrassed and feel like I wanted to get out of the space and, um, not because anybody would recognize me or there would be any sort of strange interaction, but just, I felt ashamed of hearing my voice, um, you know, out loud. And you're right. You do have to listen to it to the point where you get to the mixes. And once you finish mastering the record, it's like, it's done and you kind of, you're done with it. Um, I, I think, I think it's not only about the sort of strangeness of hearing your own, um, artistic sort of choices back it's also a feeling of like that's done now for me it it feels like all right that's done like what's what's happening now and even with this record which is kind of still just finding its final form it's like um it does feel like now what you know now what am I gonna say and it's funny when you talk about stuff that you've created in the past you have to go back into that headspace and remember why you did it and how it was. And I, I like that part of it. I like talking to you. I like remembering being in that room with Annie and Thomas. I, I like remembering my own painful judgment. And but um, yeah, but listening to the song itself doesn't doesn't appeal. <laughs> well, yeah, that's what I was going to say. That the, the addendums are also you know when you hear it when it's played in public, or you know like when you're getting ready for a tour, or if you reach the point of the greatest hits. You know, and you have to go back and do stuff for a retrospective, but yeah. pretty much that's it. You know, it's like the only time, I mean, you know, most people, it's funny. I, I, you know, I've interviewed thousands of people and, you know, probably there are less than 10 who admit to going back and like, oh yeah, shit. When I'm driving down PCH, I crank my own stuff. <laughs> I have met, I have met one artist that um, loves playing their own music and, and as it turns out is, is probably a narcissistic psychopath. So I, I think it, it is probably accurate your, um, your judgment on, on that. Damn, I'm so tempted to ask you, but I will not, but let's come on now <laughs> for your, uh, you know, it's funny because, you know, the thing is too, what's cool about this is right. When you talk about the idea of wanting to do something entirely different, you know, some of the people who've written some of the greatest protest songs of all time are people who are artists who've been able to evolve consistently and change and morph. And I mean, of course, when you think protest songs, you think of like a Dylan, for example, but then you also think of like, you know, the Chicks chose a U2 song and that's a band who, you know, has always been able to be political, but also mm-hmm. been able to evolve and, you know, go from doing Sunday Bloody Sunday to freaking Zuropa, you know, mm-hmm. and pop and all that. So, mm-hmm. so I'm curious, what is, what is the first protest song for you that, you know, really inspires you or that really excites you or that really, you know, when you think of like a great, you know, and it's funny, I say protest song, but it also, you know, just songs of social change or justice, mm-hmm. you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be like, a, you know, we went down to the freaking courthouse and, you know, whatever. Yeah. I mean, for, for me, a band that really stood out to me throughout my life, and I think often it has to do with what you are raised on. You know, my, my parents were huge Midnight Oil fans, and that was sort of probably one of the first concerts I saw live was Peter Garrett and the band down at a um, Save the Manly Dam, which is our local um, 
kind of like the, a waterway that was being kind of destroyed. And there was only, I think, maybe 200 people down there at the time when I was sitting on the grass watching him sing. And I, I remember knowing that something really special was happening, what I saw on stage. I didn't really understand it. I knew it was like it made me want to move and it made me feel good, but I didn't understand like what the passion really was. I just loved it. And and after that, I listened to a lot of Diesel and Dust, their record that dad had. And and mostly because I wanted to dance to it. You know, I like I just liked the feeling of it. I, I wasn't aware of sort of the the messages that were coming through. Um, I mean, the song I'm talking about specifically, which was the most successful sort of song of theirs, I think, throughout their career was Beds Are Burning. And yes. um and I guess what you just said then is like you asked me before about being inspired by bands that are comfortable changing and, you know, like moving through their career and and sort of they don't judge. I, I don't know. Of course, they probably judge themselves, but they're just saying what they need to say at that particular moment. And I know that they never thought of themselves, well, at least from interviews that I've seen of like, you know, people call them a political band, but they were they were sort of like, we're just people who have have feelings about issues and stuff that's going on and we write songs and sometimes it's about that, you know. It's like they, they, were, they were passionate songwriters and performers and they brought that energy to everything they did, regardless of whether it was a political song or not a political song. But anyway, Beds Burning was very powerful for me and, and sort of it wasn't until I was an adult that I understood what it was about and... And my parents, you know, did their best to educate us about Indigenous Australian um, issues that were happening. But we were so isolated from it. It was something that I grew up in an area that was incredibly sacred Indigenous land, but there wasn't one Indigenous person uh, in our area. And, um, and you know, the education system didn't really have an accurate sort of uh, amount of information for for us about what had actually happened and um and anyway it was it was sort of more recently I became uh incredibly interested in it um the, the, obviously you heard about the bushfire season and everything that happened in Australia over that period of time and it was because of that that I got connected to um some of the Indigenous groups that are doing stuff in Australia and and that was because I wanted to do a cover of Beds Are Burning and I knew it was about Indigenous land rights and I sort of wanted to, I wanted to talk about the fact that Australia as, as, as a country ha- hasn't been, um, so there's so many problems, but it, like the biggest one is that there's been no um, real acknowledgement of, of the ownership of the land and um and the fact that the fires are as bad as they are now has a lot to do with the fact that there hasn't been Indigenous land management of Australia. And and anyway, I got the real great opportunity to talk to a lot of people who um, are sort of pushing for that and Indigenous people who, who um, yeah, who got to hear my version of the song. And, of course, I asked the band as well if it was okay for me to to release it and and that was really uh, a powerful period uh, earlier this year really like understanding 
the history of that song and also just really trying to tip my hat to like where we're at now because it was written almost 30 years ago and it's still as relevant. And I, I think that's what makes a, a song so powerful is like is that so often the thing that has been sung about is still happening now. Like it's crazy that we have these amazing protest songs, these amazing artists doing this stuff and and it's still not clocking into the mainframe of the human condition. You know, it's like, what is, what is wrong with us? It's um, anyway, so that's a sort of very loose ramble about beds are burning and midnight oil and how they've affected me in my life and, and what they've done for that sort of messaging about indigenous Australian issues. They're, they're such a powerhouse that band and we're so lucky to have them. Well, and it's so funny that you said that they said they were not a political band because I got to talk to Peter only once. I'm a huge fan. I interviewed him after, of course, he had already been in the Australian Parliament. So how yeah. do you consider yourself not in a, a political band when you actually abandoned music? I shouldn't say abandoned, that's the wrong <laughs> term. When you quit music yeah, yeah. to go join Parliament. I mean, you, you can't get, I mean, as much as like, I'm a fan of like Springsteen or Dylan or people like that, you know, shit, even Bono hasn't quit a band to go join Parliament, you know? He may consider it at some point, but, you know, hasn't done it yet. So that's about as political as a band can get. But I'm a huge fan, and they're an awesome band. And, you know, it's interesting because something you just said was so true. And this is one of the things, though, that, that you know, is interesting, right? The very first people who did the show were the band The Indigo Girls. And the first song they chose was We Shall Overcome, which is a song that is 100 years old. And, you know, as they pointed out, people were still singing in the protests, in the Black Lives Matters protests here. You know, so it's true. I mean, with great protest songs, they stay relevant forever. They, they you know, and it's funny because you wish that, that as, as it's come up many times as we've gone through these songs with so many people now, the hope is that you can appreciate them only for their musicality and they weren't still staying so damn topical. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a really lovely idea. I think that's a sort of um, a time in, in the future, hopefully, that there's some sort of spiritual awakening across the human species. You know, I, I mean, we're basically talking about every human being free of suffering. And that's like, that's just, it's such a dream to be able to listen to music that is written about this stuff and just feel how beautifully, how beautifully it was played, you know, how beautifully it was expressed. And what an amazing thing that there was a time of such brutality and savagery in the human species like that will be a moment that I won't be alive for um, but but um yeah a very beautiful thing to kind of imagine so it's interesting for you then what would be you know like it's funny when you think of a song like beds are burning how does that influence you you know and your own work and what you've done and it's funny because sometimes it's simply again in terms of crafting a song that's timeless you know it's not necessarily about like oh okay you know, you're not necessarily going to write, you know, your own indigenous song, but it's simply you hear like little things about that song that influence you as you go on. Yeah, I think it's about being, um, being really true to what you hear when you're writing music. And I don't, I don't presume to understand how the band Midnight Oil in that moment of writing the song, how they, how it came together and how, what their process is. But hearing music like that, hearing a song like that and seeing it performed live and the way it's performed live 
the way that that impacted me um, and probably, again, even more so as I, as I get older, it's about having, like, real integrity about what you feel in a moment and whatever that's about, you know, whether it's about um, your, your, your sort of, your version of suffering or somebody else's in your life, like your, um, your witnessing of the world, it's like being honest to that and, and, you know, trying your best to not apologize for what you say. And I, I think that's, that sometimes, you know, again, that thing of just taking away the judgment and just doing the thing that you love doing and doing it in the way that feels, feels right in the moment. And hopefully out of that, you know, great songs can come and, um, yeah, and I, I think as well, just on a more kind of more of a surface level, like hearing great songs that make you move has been a huge part of what's inspired me to make this record. I really wanted to, at some point in my life, make a record that felt like I could move my body to it and have fun. You know, I, I think I've always written a lot of songs about the sadness of heartbreak and the sadness of how people treat each other. And, and that's been, you know, um, that's that's been a part of, you know, a cathartic experience of songwriting for me is sitting down and getting some of that stuff out and and hopefully that then makes it easier to sort of be positive in the world and feel good about waking up and being a part of it. Um, but, you know, I think, you know, I've been so lucky that these songs have existed that have made me want to move and feel alive and want to be here in that, in that way and... I'm hoping that some of the music of this has that same energy, you know, that has that energy of like, let's, let's connect and celebrate each other. And um, yeah, I'm hoping that we get to, we get to actually do that again. Eventually. Yes. You know, it's interesting then what's your next song? Cause I like the fact though, that you pick songs that, you know, have sort of an upbeat edge because this is something that's come up doing the show as well. Look, there's the idea of the protest song, the, you know, freaking, are you going to San Francisco with flowers in your hair? which yeah. is fine. But then there's also the songs that kind of inspire you. And that uh, when I was talking with Carlos and Cindy Santana, it came up and kind of the best way of, there's the songs that fire you up and, and Cindy picked, you know, James Brown, I'm black and I'm proud, you know? Mm. And it's like, mm. that is very different than a Dylan blowing in the wind. So I like that you picked a beds are burning, which is, you know, sort of more of a get the credit, you know, rather than it's going to be everybody sitting around a campfire singing along, it's going to be mm. a mosh pit. So what's your next song? Yeah. Yeah, well, this, I mean, this kind of ties into the next song, actually, that I picked. Um, it was everywhere. It was like, and, and it still is a song that it, it comes on. And I, not the original song, actually. The remix of this song was the most successful one. But the original content is what is powerful, is the Yothi Yindi song, Treaty. Um, and, again, it ties into where I was born and raised. And I, I think the political songs that, you know, um, there's the song after this that I picked is is not about Indigenous Australia, but um, Treaty was was sort of it was a pretty amazing thing to happen to have um, a band that you know was mostly Indigenous have such success with a a song like this. It it really um, it really was a powerful message because. You know, I, I wasn't really aware at the time. Again, I was four years old when this song sort of 
um, when the the Barunga statement, when when um, Bob Hawke sort of said, you know, our government will create a treaty with the Indigenous Australians, and um, and of course that never happened. Um, uh, but you know, the fact that then this band created a song. Um, that was kind of just reminding everybody this never happened, you know, and it still reminds everybody this never happened. And a lot of people don't really even know that that's what they're singing when they're singing or hearing the song because the song's so catchy and powerful and dancey and amazing. Um, but I, I, I think from what I've heard from different Indigenous Australian artists, what this song meant for them, it was it was super powerful because it was it was. Indigenous people talking about it and it, and it having this reach and and the difference with something like beds are burning is that there's there's um, that's coming from white Australians. This is Indigenous Australians saying, you know, like treaty now, treaty yeah, like this is the time and it still is the time now. You know, like it's crazy that this hasn't happened and I understand it's a really complicated issue and and I don't ever claim to understand the intricacies of how, you know, how you would do that with so many different, um, so many different kind of Indigenous cultures within the culture. But I, I just think it's, it's really um, relevant still today, this song, and it's still as powerful and, and such a strong song and the melodies and, um, yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's quite a incredible step in our history musically. See, it's so interesting that you picked two songs that are more upbeat and everything, because like you say, so it's interesting, as you started to make this new record, did you feel like it was just the natural point for you to do so and that you were ready to just do something totally different? Come here, Deuter. Good boy. Good boy. Sorry, that's my cat. Oh, that's so nice. The cat and dog living together. Yeah, I mean, it's. I feel like a little bit, um, it's hard to kind of tie in my record to songs like bands like Yothi Yindi or Midnight Oil, I feel like I'm not even, I don't ever think of myself in that way um, because I'm just not that, I'm not, I'm, I'm personally um, passionate about um, political issues and, and particularly with what's happened here in Australia with Indigenous Australians, but I, I would never... Um, my music is is such a is has always been more about a, a personal journey to um, to to be more and more authentic in myself and um, so I'm just I'm just sort of saying this as a disclaimer because it just feels like to kind of tie into like this record is it feels like I I feel hugely um, I don't know what the word is. <laughs> I feel like embarrassed. I'm just like, oh no, no, no! This is like, it's totally different, separate worlds. It's um, making this record for sure for me was about about being more connected to that sort of the joy of music and the the feeling of like when it really makes you want to move. And I've never done that, and I've always wanted to do that. I, I just loved, I loved that feeling growing up and putting on records loud and moving and moving my body as a kid. And I felt like that was. That was freedom. That was freedom from whatever the stuff that was going on within the family, whatever the, the painful things that you didn't understand were happening. You you put on a track and turned it up, and you just you just wriggled about, you know, like not knowing what you were doing. But it it was freedom, and and I haven't I haven't made music like that. So definitely, this was my time to start going in that direction. 
All right, now see, it's so funny though, because when I was interviewing the chicks yesterday, right? You know, obviously the, a lot of that record was written about a divorce. So they did take me through their divorce records as well. Each of them <laughs> gave me their record that they listened to during their divorce. So, you know, we can play off the idea of, you know, again, with podcasts, it could be loose format. So what were the songs that when you were a kid would make you, as you put it, wriggle the most? What were those one or two songs that every time you would hear them would just make you jump up and down? And, and it's funny because, by the way, though, you say you don't tie those two things in together, but you did use the word freedom. And there is a freedom that comes in, you know, political music. But again, it's even go back. I go back years ago, right after, you know, the, the guy who's in our office now, who I don't refer to by name, was elected. I was speaking with many artists about how it influenced them musically. And I was talking mm-hmm. with Debbie Harry and Chris Stein from Blondie. And they're very political. But as they said, they never wanted to write a political song because it's a political statement in its own way for people to come see them and yeah. Yeah. You know, dance and have fun. So, yeah. so, you know, like just making music where people can dance and be free, especially in 2020 when the world is going to shit is very mm-hmm. much a political statement in its own way. So don't discount the, the, you know, political thing, even though it's not a, you know, again, even though it's not, you know, Duder, come here. Even though it's not, a, are you going to San Francisco with flowers in your hair? It is still, you know, very much a political statement. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I mean, art has always, or what it's meant to have always been um, the place where you can kind of um, have have freedom from the these kind of very painful truths about what, what the world is and, and where it's going. And, and I think you know, that's why always in the history of kind of genocide, the artists and the poets, they're always the first to go. It's like they stand for a kind of human freedom that is, it is sort of, it's a birthright to, to be born as a human and to be able to sing and to dance and to express in that way is something that, you know, once that goes, that's, that's, that's when we're really, we're really fucked, you know, it's like, that's, um, that's, uh, that is a, yeah, I guess a, a way, a way out of those moments. And, and I liked what you said about people going to see those guys. It's a political kind of statement in and of itself. Um, but yeah, I, I think growing up, the things that, the songs that I would put on to really, um, to really get lost in, you know, like, um, uh, I remember, I don't know the title uh, because I'm sure it's called just I Want to Dance. It's um, with the Whitney Houston song, which still I go crazy for if it is ever, is ever a playing. It's just absolutely phenomenal. Yeah, I want to dance with somebody is what it's called. I want to dance with somebody. Uh, it's just like, I don't think it really gets better than that. It's, such a great song. And recently I actually saw her performance at the Super Bowl of her doing the national anthem, which has now become one of my favourite vocal performances of all time. I just I just can't even fathom that sort of skill. She's just so, and she's so relaxed, you know, she's so relaxed doing this just mind-blowing performance it's just incredible like I just tears in my eyes I'm not patriotic at all about being Australian and I'm sure the same goes for people 
in America right now, but like there's just something amazing about that moment in history where she's standing there in front of all those people just just killing it. Like it's just so good. Well, it's funny because the same thing. I mean, to me, my favorite version of the Star Spangled Banner, National Anthem, whatever you want to call it ever, whatever, is Marvin Gaye. Because, you know, I mean, it's just because he's freaking Marvin Gaye. And he did it at the NBA All-Star Game in the 80s. And it's the same thing. I've definitely, especially, you know, I've never been what you would call overly patriotic. And, you know, especially not now. But, you know, when you hear a vocal performance like that, you know, it's Marvin freaking gay, you know, mm. just doing a great mm. song, you know? Mm. Mm. So how can it not inspire you? So now I'm curious though, and, and you know, what's your, what's your last, because the, the, you said you, the last song is more, you know, is not necessarily about the indigenous stuff. So I'm curious, what was your, your next or last protest song? Well, I had a couple more, but I'm going to go with the next one. Was- oh, you can go with a couple more. I mean, it's funny. Everyone does however they want to do. I mean, if there's more than three, you know, Again, with the chicks, they did nine because there's three people in the band. So, you know. Fair enough. Yeah. No, I, I understand that. It's like you can't, it's like with Angus and I when we do stuff and you sort of have to merge, you know, merge your choices together. And it's it's um it's not what you want to do. You're like, well, we're different people, so we have three different songs each. It's like it um often takes a bit longer, <laughs> but it's fair. That's all right. I mean, for me, just, just so you know, look, man, this is just me as a music geek, you know, sort of geeking out. And I'm like, okay, cool. Like I think about favorite protest songs. So if you have 10 of them, I have time for 10 of them because I'm always fascinated to hear people's choices. Well, the next, the next song that I have always loved, and I don't know if it was actually necessarily like, a protest song. This is one where it's sort of on the line of, it was just a song that really um, sort of purified that, that feeling of how messed up the world is and that we all know it was Leonard Cohen's Everybody Knows. Um, I listened to a lot of Leonard Cohen um, in when I wasn't dancing and losing myself in dance, when I was <laughs> indulging in the actual um, true suffering of, of being a human, it was Leonard who sort of um, relieved that valve. And um, and this song was just like, I, I mean, it, it said it said it so well. And he went through every everything. I love that sort of opening line of everybody knows that the dice are loaded. You know, it's like the fact that we all know all of this stuff is the part that's so heartbreaking. If we didn't know, if we sort of didn't, we weren't aware and we were like, you know, animals kind of wandering around doing what we did um, without any consciousness, that would be, that would, we wouldn't even know that it was happening. But the fact that we do know it's happening and it's still happening is the part that's really painful. And, and yeah, I just, I, I think his way with words is something that, I don't, he's my favorite lyricist of all time. And I'm sure that's the same for so many people. It's, um, yeah, I, I, I guess I don't know what else to say about that other than that it's just, um, yeah, phenomenally written. So how old were you when you first heard that song? Or how old were you when you first got introduced to Leonard Cohen? And it's very funny, by the way, because I'm, I, I have interviewed everyone, so I don't really get starstruck, but I was standing next to Leonard Cohen at an event for him at the Canadian consulate here in the U.S., in Los Angeles, Mm -hmm. and just standing two feet from Leonard Cohen. I was very starstruck. But what's interesting, too, is, by the way, I actually did not get turned on to Leonard Cohen through his music. The first thing I fell in love with from Leonard Cohen was a poem called You Do Not Have to Love Me. I don't know if you know that one or not, 
It is an amazing, Google it after, I'm not going to butcher it by trying to read it, but it is a mm -hmm. brilliant, brilliant poem. And, you know, it's funny. And that actually that ties in nicely with what we were talking about with the spoken word. Because, you know, here is this guy who, who, you know, was also one of the great poets. But so how do you, like, it's funny because you say he's your all-time favorite lyricist. At what point did you sort of recognize, because it's funny, like as a kid, you might appreciate it. But Leonard Cohen is not necessarily something like my favorite lyricist of all time is Tom Waits. I didn't understand mm -hmm. it until I was 18. So is there a point for you where you sort of understood Leonard Cohen and appreciated the brilliance or where you started to, you know, get into the depths of it? Because like you said, with Beds Are Burning too, it took a minute for you, like you heard it as a song and you're like, oh, it's a catchy song. And then you get older and you're like, oh shit, this is really deep and, and powerful. Yeah, I, I think Leonard Cohen made sense to me because... Um, the, the human heartbreak of, of loss of love was something that happened, you know, within my family and also within my kind of like, I think I understood Leonard, Leonard from the point of view of, of personal heartbreak within relationships from when I was about 17. And that was the first time I, I had, my parents were getting divorced and my, my first boyfriend who I was madly in love with, you know, decided he wanted to have sex with other people, you know, and it was like, um, you know, it was kind of like this moment where I understood, <laughs> I understood that there's like, there's pain in, in life. And, and it's, and I, I hadn't understood even like, I knew that was, there was something wrong with my parents' relationship. I knew it wasn't normal. And um, I didn't really, but it, it was sort of like, I was a bit like, it was there and happiness was here. And I, I experienced happiness as a young, as a young child. I remember a lot of happiness as a kid. And even though there was this kind of very crazy relationship happening in front of me with my parents, I didn't, it didn't feel like I was taking it in. It felt like I was still able to experience joy outside of that. Once I had personally experienced this pain of like what it is to be let down by somebody that you've opened yourself up to, um, I understood the gravity of what my parents had gone through for the first time and the gravity of the pain of that, of having three children and raising them together and being so incredibly awful to each other. And, um, and that was when Leonard, like his lyrics all of the sudden, and it wasn't like all of the sudden I'd been listening to it and all of the sudden they made sense. This was when I found Leonard, you know, when it was like, I, I put it on and it was just, you know, everything made sense about what he was saying about the capacity we have as humans to hurt one another. You know, that lyric in the song, you know, everybody knows that you've been faithful. Ah, uh, give, give, give a night or take a night or two, give or take a night or two. I just love that idea that it's like we have this idea of being great people and being, you know, or good people, you know, being a good human and, you know, give or take, give or take a few things that I've done or said or, you know, and, and that's, that's where we mess up, I think. It's like we, we can't be pure and we, you know, and we have so much expectation of ourselves to be this way. And, and um, even at Leonard Cohen, I don't know if you've seen the documentary, um, the, uh, Leonard and Marianne. No. It's so good. I, I really recommend you watching it. I just, I, to me, that was this incredible story about this love affair that happened throughout his life with Marianne and how heartbreaking it was the way that, you know, I mean, even Leonard was a human, you know, and did things that were not great, you know, like, and, and um, yeah. And I, I think that 
we all are like that. We're all flawed and trying to merge the flaws with the beauty is what he does so well in his, in his lyrics. You know, what's so fascinating about that to me is again, you know, it's funny because I had the chicks on yesterday and I spoke with them about this at length. And, you know, it's interesting. A lot of these same ideas came up and where we were talking about their quote unquote divorce albums. And in fact, you know, Emily and Marty are sisters and Emily was telling me about their, or Marty was telling me about, you know, her divorce album, you know, when her parents got divorced as a kid. And what's interesting is that brings up is look, great writers of protest songs you know, are also people who are great vulnerable writers. And so there is such a correlation between the two because like, for example, I'm a huge John Lennon fan. I've always argued to me, John Lennon was my favorite political songwriter because there's such a personal nature to the Mm -hmm. stuff that he Mm -hmm. writes about. So it's interesting though that what you say about Leonard Cohen and, you know, going back to what we're talking about with your record again, I think that just being a vulnerable songwriter Mm. is, is, you know, a form of sort of a, not it doesn't you wouldn't necessarily call it protest but there is just a vulnerable you know like whether you are writing personally or politically or oftentimes when they merge together you know it it Mm -hmm. kind of ties in with the same vulnerability because look i mean leonard cohen was like you say everybody knows you know and a lot of great songs are songs that straddle that line they're not necessarily quote-unquote protest songs you know no no i mean that you're right it's like that he he brings it down to a personal a personal place and but but so much of it is more about this sort of human uh, human setting you know about um you know it's like about everybody knows the war is over everybody knows that the good guys lost it's like it's this this feeling of this um overarching humanity um, and the, the mistakes of humanity. And then he brings it into everybody knows that you've been faithful uh, given that or two. He's talking about his experience of pain. It's like, and that is, and that is being vulnerable to reveal that you've experienced pain in your life and to be okay with that. And, and, and I think often in my actual kind of life as a, as a person talking to you now, there's a sort of sense of self-judgment about like, oh, you've had a pretty good life. You've had, you know, and I was raised like this. It's good enough, you know, like life is good enough. So get on with it and don't complain about it. And so to feel like you um, can say to somebody, I'm really struggling or I'm having a really hard time as a human right now, feels like you don't have the right to do that because you haven't really had that much pain considering there is so much travesty going on in the world. And, and so, you know, there's a lot of dismissing of pain that happens within people's lives, but songwriting is a place where you have to do that. At least for me, that was the place where I could do it and I didn't have to apologize for doing it. I'm a human being who feels pain and I feel sad. And this is where I'm free to do that. And, and I, I think that's one of the beauties of music. And I always try and get everybody, no matter whether you think you're a good singer or a, or a bad singer, to sing because singing is this freedom that, that you can go to those places without having to explain why you, you're doing it. And, 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 and I think the more vulnerable you are in songwriting, the more you reveal that, that sort of deep, deeper world that you have, the deeper and longer story that's been going on for, forever, the more that sort of three to six minute song can can kind of translate that for people and perhaps maybe hopefully unveil that experience for somebody else so they don't feel ashamed to have those feelings. And, and, that, and I think I'm learning more and more that doing that in your personal life and doing that as a human is also very important. And that sort of comes second to me. Like I'm realizing now telling people that I feel certain ways or 
or this is this is okay for me or this isn't okay for me it is is okay it's like that's the, the more you reveal your vulnerabilities i think the more open you become to other people's and you can connect more deeply well especially as a songwriter the more open you are the more you connect on a deeper level with your fans the more yeah, they appreciate yeah. and the more they understand and it's by the way is there a name for the album yet well, I have a few. I have a few that I'm thinking about. I, I, I um, as soon as I look at it, I'll let you know. Okay. No, just so I can refer to it by day. But but okay. With the, we'll call it the record. And it's interesting because when you think about you know that vulnerability and opening yourself up and and you know it's funny because Leonard Cohen, you can tie it more in to your stuff. I mean, are there moments on here on this new record where you find? you know, that vulnerability or where you, again, I mean, good writing, I, I talk about this all the time, it unfurls itself. It kind of reveals itself. So were there moments on this record that surprised you or that, you know, in a good way where you're like, oh, I didn't realize I was thinking that or you can't believe how open you are on it? I think, yeah, I think there's a few moments where, um, where there's a song that actually I did, um, it was one of the earlier ones that was written. It's called We All Have. And actually Matt from um, from the National say, sings um, sings on the song with me, which is really lovely because he's got that beautiful, deep sort of Leonard Cohen-style voice. And he sings one of the lyrics that it, for me is sort of what it's all about. He sings a lyric. He says, love is all we needed to be here for. And the song came out of... I don't really know where, but it was sort of the feeling that I have underneath all of the pain that we're all in at different times is that we have the potential to be okay. You know, that that potential is what I think keeps a lot of us going is this idea that we do have the capacity for love. We do have the capacity to connect. We do have the capacity to, to forgive and to, you know, um, yeah, and, and to, to kind of, it, it, the, the chorus is we all have the lightness to be okay and this idea that there is, and I mean, I'm not a religious person at all, but but I, I, I like the themes around light and dark and this idea that we, we have both of them coexisting. Leonard Cohen always talks about this sort of, you know, the cracks are where the light gets through and, and, and I think that it's a really powerful notion and, and this song is like it, I think what surprised me was that it is it is sort of like a maybe could be looked at as like a darker content, but it, it's such a light song. You know, it came out in this way that was really, it felt like the lightness of what I was trying to sing about and it came out exactly how I felt, you know, we have the lightness to be okay, okay, okay for now. And that's all we need is just to be okay for now. And if we can keep being okay now and finding that place all of us, we could maybe be okay for longer than now, <laughs> you know, each now as it shows up. Um, and that was, the, yeah, that's a really, um, that's a really nice moment. And I really hope that people get to hear that song in its own world. It's probably one of the least danceable tracks. It's, it's a really tender moment on the record. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think there were, there were moments that, I got to the heart of what I feel. Um, another song called I Am No One that I also feel really reflects um, some of those feelings around making bad choices and, and, and sort of 
I don't know, maybe like what I said before, like merging the flaws with the good and accepting that sort of kind of malformed package that you come in. All right. Well, you know, it's funny because I'm a huge national fan of Matt is one of my favorite. He's probably my favorite contemporary songwriter, you know, absolute yeah. huge fan. And by the way, you know, going back to what we we're talking about, the merging of the political and the personal, I always remember talking with him and asking him about, you know, sort of becoming more socially conscious. And I loved his answer where he talked about the fact, well, I'm a father. So everything I write is infused with being, you know, political because basically he's like, these are the things that I think about as a father. So he talked about yeah. how, you know, even though it's not overly political, you know, so I think he's such a great person in that vein. So, you know, it's interesting for you when you work with someone like that or when you work with Annie, you know, talk about, you know, getting the perspective of, you know, because obviously, look, you and you and your brother had made music together for some time. And by the way, Rick Rubin is one of my absolute favorite people in music. I, I mm. love Rick Rubin and I love talking with him. He's one of the smartest people in the world, you know, but it's very different also collaborating with other musicians. So talk about, you know, what you learned from them on this. And then, you know, we've been on them for a while. So this, this, and then I'll ask you for your last protest song and I will let you go. But, you know, I mean, you know, talk about what you learned from them on this record. And, you know, especially because it ties in nicely. Well, you know, you put together the record earlier on where you worked with Damien Rice, who's brilliant, you know, and putting together Mm -hmm. the charity record, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, putting together that record was was really um, probably a career highlight for me. I shouldn't say a career highlight. It was a personal highlight. It wasn't, it was like this moment where um, I guess it ties into my career because it's in music, but it was a moment of real humanity. It was like the way that people responded to um, to me reaching out and going, hey, there's this thing happening and it's really serious and um, a lot of people are really scared and 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 it's and it's an ongoing issue and and what do you think you know like what what do you think about maybe um singing something that that could contribute and and help some of these people and um everybody's responses were just like breathtaking I mean these are the busiest hardest working musicians in the world and this was pre-COVID so it was you know mid tours and um mid record making and everybody just came back with absolute like love and um and and, you know a lot of like personal stories about their experiences of coming to Australia and what Australia means to them and and um, just so grateful for the opportunity to do something, feeling helpless and just if I can do anything. And I just, I, I remember just thinking like, you know, you go for you go through these days of just thinking humans are the worst. And then you, and, and then you have a day like, you know, where you get the emails back and, or, or the phone calls or the text messages just saying, I'll, I'll do anything I can to help. And, and this is how I feel about the situation and, and the openness and beauty of artists and musicians in that, in that time was so moving to me. It was really, it was, um, I just felt so lucky to be able to experience that connection with all those people. And then also on top of that with the charities that we were supporting and, and talking and meeting those people and hearing about what their vision is for a better Australia and, and world and 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 you know it just it it, made, it humbled me so much um, doing that and and I did lo- learn a lot and it really um, clarified a lot of things for me about why I play music and what's important about music what's important about sort of um, a future in music and and a future as a 
as a person on the planet. And what you said about Matt having children, I think is, you know, um, I don't have children myself. And I think when you talk to people who have children, they, they often, it's, it's like something changes for them in their life where they realize that this, there is, it goes on and it goes on for people that you, you love. And I certainly, I don't know. I, I think we, we have been in a period of time where we think very short term and it would be nice to get into a period where we think really long term and we think about what, what it'll be like for the, for the kids of our kids. And, um, and yeah, so I learn a lot about the humanness through all of those musicians who showed up and how they performed those songs. I mean, hearing Laura Mavula do Reckless was like one of my favourite moments musically. I just, I couldn't believe it. Just like a synth and a beat and her voice. It was like breathtaking, her version of that song. And then Martha doing the ship song and obviously the national, like that was just an incredible version. Um, and all of them, I mean, all of them, but they were just all so remarkable versions of these classic Australian songs that we'd all grown up with and people were blown away and people were so supportive of it. And, and you know, we raised a lot of money for all of these, these organisations and it was, yeah, it was just, I, I feel like it doesn't get better than that. Like putting out this record is amazing and having worked with Annie and Thomas over the last, you know, year, couple of years has been incredible and of course working with Rick was insane because like you said he's one of the greatest people to talk to I was having an incredibly challenging time in my life making that record and Rick was um a real just like a rock you know like I'd turn up to I'd turn up to kind of make music but end up just talking to him about the challenges I was having in my life and he he had time for always had time for it and some of the most helpful advice that I've ever had you know so um yeah we're really lucky when we get surrounded by people that teach us things either musically or or personally and speaking of teaching things then what's your last protest song oh yeah okay I mean this is sort of like one of the most heartbreaking songs I I sort of heard it at my friend's house um and I very often don't listen to the lyrics when I hear a song first. I just hear the melody and the voice and the, the feeling and the sound. And I, I remember hearing it and just thinking, what a beautiful song, like how beautifully sung that is. And, and I said to my friend, I love, I love this song. It's so um, beautiful. And she said, um, do you know what it's about? And I said, no, I, I wasn't really listening. I just, I love the sound of it. And she said, oh, it's about the lynching of black Americans. And, um, and it's strange fruit that was sung by Billie Holiday. And I listened back and then it was really, you know, not only like the most heartbreaking performance, but just what an what a incredibly sad time in history, you know, and again, like here we are, but just that, that actually the visual imagery of that and how, I mean, it's a really hard song to listen to and, um, but so important. And again, it's a song that still is being sung today for the same, the same energy of racism that's still going on. It's just, yeah, that, that, that's, that was my last song. I, I, I just thought, 
how powerful a, a song can be when you know that it's special just without even knowing what it's about or hearing the lyrics and then and then it goes so much deeper. Yeah. That's a song that that has come up quite a bit during this, you know, it's funny. What's been interesting is the songs picked have been very diverse, but Strange yeah. Fruit is one of those ones that has come up multiple times. Yeah. And for yeah. good reason. It's a classic for a reason, you know? Yeah. Cool. We have covered a lot. Is there anything that you want to add I did not ask you about? <laughs> no, I've really enjoyed speaking with you. Thanks so much. I I um I I really like the sort of the opportunity to go a bit deeper into what it is about making music that is important to me. And I, I, I think it's um rare often that you get the opportunity as an artist to kind of go this deep into into what it's about. Well thank you. That's a huge compliment. It's uh yeah, I mean it's funny. I have a lot of artist friends and, and I was telling the chicks a story yesterday that, you know, cause they had done a ton of interviews for the new album before I got to yeah. talk to them. And I'm friends with Courtney Love and I had been with her one day where she was doing interviews. And I was like, I can't listen to these interviews. They're too stupid. I'm going in the other room and I'm going to go play video yeah. games and you let me know when it's my turn. Yeah. So- I mean, it, <laughs> that, that, that's, that sometimes can be like, you know, those days where like we were probably there with her when she was doing the, like one comes in and then the next comes in and it's like back to back and, and often the same questions or some, or, or, or questions that sort of like come off um, a Wikipedia page that hasn't been updated. You know, it's like, I, I, I think it's really, I think artists crave to be able to talk about why they made music or why why they make music or or what it is that they sort of that triggered them as a kid to sort of go that's the moment that I know that this is something really important like this is something that I should be a part of and 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 I feel like as an interviewer it's such a shame to miss out on asking those questions because it is a nice experience you know to have this I don't know you I've never met you before but I have this connection to you from the other side of the world you know, because you're asking me about what is happening inside my heart. And that's, that's really nice. <laughs> well, on that note, I'm going to go because that is a, a tremendous compliment and I appreciate it greatly. And no, this was a pleasure. I really enjoyed doing it. And, you know, it's funny because for me, this format is so fun because look, I just, again, it's me starting off as a music geek going, oh, what's the favorite protest song? What's this? You know, but these are the things that I think about. So, mm-hmm. you know, it is true because what I've realized is, look, again, like, I was telling, I was interviewing Steve Van Zant today from the E Street Band. And we were talking about, right? For me, in the 80s, I saw the Amnesty tours with like U2 and Bruce Springsteen. And then I ended mm-hmm. up working for Amnesty and Greenpeace. So it's that music that you hear early on that shapes you and identifies you and stays with you your whole life. Mm. Oh, I just wanted to say, just when you were saying, I just, I had this thought about, <clears throat> you asked me before about, the, if, if there's anything I wanted to add. And I just had this thought about a song that I didn't mention that I, that I also just, I, Annie, Annie was like really pushy about me finding a, a, a deeper meaning behind this song. And I just thought it would be relevant to talk about in the context of everything that we've been talking about, about protest songs, about being here, about what it's about. And there was this song that started off as this sort of like love song about like being in the back of your car and, you know, like having fun. And we were, we were there to make each other happy. And, and Annie sort of was like, what is this really about? Like, what's, what's this song about? And I said, well, sort of, (laughs) it's about the fact that things, we have this idea 
about what life is and then it changes. And, and it's, it's, it, and I said, it sort of started this song out of this moment where my friend were at this party and we had this really lovely night, you know, one of those magical nights where everything's happening. It's like the, there's that sort of sparkle in the air and you kind of like I, this amazing woman who lives on the Northern beaches where, where I grew up, who is um, an ex-dominatrix and she has this incredible house with like sex dungeons and, you know, and like for a very kind of, um, you know, sort of standard beach community, like, you know, this was the most interesting place to kind of be. And, and I, I'd always wanted to go to a party there. And I ended up at this party there one night and it was a lot of fun. And there was all this kind of crazy stuff going on. And, and my, my friend turned to me and she sort of looked at me and she said, and this was summer in Australia and summer on the Northern beaches. And it was like the smells of that time. It's like the sunscreen and the beach and the salt water. And it's very like significant of Australia. You smell the kind of dying Christmas trees and, and, she she looked at me and she said, we've only got 60 summers left. And, and I remember sort of for the first time realizing that there was this um, finite period of time as a human being, being myself, you know, like I knew that, that there was the potential of like, you know, um, the idea of reincarnation or the, the idea of afterlife. But as I know it, as I'm sure this was going to be it. 60 summers was it. And it was such a small amount of time. I remember just having this like very, like the first real feeling of the finality and the mortality of life. And, and this, this um, feeling about life is so short and, and we don't have a lot of time here to, so let's do it right and let's like show up for it in the right way and let's do it for the right reasons. And and Annie really like got me to, when I said the thing about the 60 summers, she goes, that's it. Like that's what the song is about. Like find the lyrics that tell that story, you know, it, and it, it can be through the through the love and through what what happens within the love, but you have to find a way to make that that what is what is important. And anyway, that for me represents the record. It's like this feeling of you got this sort of 60 summers on the planet or 30 or 20 or, you know, 100 or whatever it is that you're going to be here and it's not that long. So so do it right. That's it. <laughs> I just wanted to say that. Uh, by the way, I'm casting my vote then for the album title to be 60 Summers. Okay. <laughs> I love that, you know. Well, I'll just tell you that's definitely um, that's definitely at the the top of the list, and and I, I'm glad you said that. So, uh, your vote of confidence will be noted, and Michelle. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, um, lovely chatting with you, and have a great uh, rest of your day. You too. Have a good one. Thanks. Bye. See ya. Bye. Bye. Hey, this is Steve Balton. You have been listening to People Have the Power with special guest Julia Stone. Thanks. We all had the likeness to be okay, okay, okay for now. We all had the likeness to be okay, okay, okay.